Hi, welcome to the second location. You're here with me, Holly, and I'm going to be talking about the Florida Furniture Store Murders and the Conviction of Tommy Ziegler in what I think could be our last episode on this topic. That is, our last episode until the DNA results come back in. But we'll get to that eventually. Now, what the state has always asserted is that Tommy lured his wife and in-laws into the store to murder them. And then after they were killed, he attempted to get three black men to go into the store because he planned to kill these three men and frame them for the murder of his family members. Of the three men he planned to kill and frame, he could only convince one to enter the store with him. This man was then killed by Tommy. Then finally, Tommy shot himself in the abdomen with a 38 and then called for help. Now, that is the state's theory of what happened that night. And simplified down this way to the barest of details, it almost makes sense. But then again, we all know there's so much more to this story. So I want to talk about what I think could have happened that night. And this is all just my theories. They could be entirely wrong. And if they are, I really do apologize. But I think that what I believe happened that night is much more likely to be the case than what the state has asserted for years. Okay, so to me, the scene looked like an interrupted robbery that had turned into a murder. But then the lead investigator, Don Fry, almost immediately after entering the crime scene, he determined that the crime had actually been a premeditated murder framed to look like a robbery gone wrong. Now, I got the impression that no other investigators had thought that Tommy was behind the murders before Don Fry was on the case. And Don Fry made himself the standout star of this investigation by coming up with a unique theory of how the crime occurred. And he retold his theory to all the other investigators and just relished every moment of it. And the basis of his theory, and the basis of his theory is the now discredited blood splatter analysis. Don Fry had recently attended, Don Fry had recently attended a week-long Don Fry had recently attended a week-long course on blood splatter interpretation held in the basement of a supposed expert and it looks like Fry considered himself an expert as well and I say suppose because while this guy Harvey McDonald was a highly regarded expert back in the day with the diminishing value attached to this so-called I think you can't you know so-called science I mean I we don't look at it as, as science anymore. I mean, blood splatter interpretation is no longer considered what it once was. And I just don't think you can be an expert of bullshit. So with Don Fry on the scene, the case turned in a completely new direction almost immediately. And the investigation would never look anywhere other than at Tommy. But I asked, could this quadruple murder actually have been a robbery gone wrong? What it looked like when the investigators initially arrived on the scene. There is evidence that both Edward Williams and Charlie Mays were both having financial difficulties, and this could be their motive for their involvement that night. Now, Williams was having a hard time maintaining work, and for the last 12 months, he had only had full-time work for five months. Of 12 months, he had only had full-time work for five months. That's not good. And he even had to borrow money from Tommy to pay his security deposit on his new apartment. And Tommy called to get Williams' electricity turned on because Williams had an outstanding electric bill that had hadn't been paid. So Tommy pulled in a favor so he could have electricity in his new place. And inside William's truck, you know, he abandoned the Ziegler store on the night of the um, murders. Well, Tommy's investigative team, they search the truck when the crime scene is finally turned over to them and they find all these cancellation notices for William's phone, electricity, and gas. 
and these documents showed that his utilities had already been turned off due to non-payment. But Williams testifies that he never didn't pay his bills. Ugh. So right there, he's a liar. And it's a liar about something that can be proven. I mean, why is anyone listening to this guy? The defense has collections notices from three different utility companies showing that the services had been terminated because Williams wasn't paying his bills. But Williams just says, nope, I always pay my bills. In the face of direct evidence that shows he is lying. But still, state investigators, they just blindly believe the bullshit story he told about Tommy trying to lure him into the store on the night of the murders. Even though, there's right there, you look at the bills. He says, I always pay my bills. But you see right, you're holding your hands and then Chelsea doesn't pay his bills. I wouldn't trust him. I think when you lie about one thing, it calls into question your other statements that you make. It just makes sense. Now, I feel comfortable saying that Williams was not in a good place financially. And Charlie Mays was rumored to have a gambling problem. And I think it's more than just rumors. Because six months before the murders, Charlie had been arrested and convicted of illegal gambling. Now, here's the really bad part. is He may have been gambling with money he got from Lone Shark. You see, Charlie Mays was the head of a fruit picking crew. And the crew liked to be paid daily. So as the head of the crew, Mays would get loans against his workers' weekly checks. So he could pay his workers daily. Was this the money he was gambling with? The money that he should have been paying his fruit picking crew with? It could have been because he had done this before. Charlie Mays had a history of gambling away his workers daily wages. And when he did it before, Tommy loaned him money so he could pay his workers. Tommy bailed him out. So we have two people at the crime scene that night that needed money. And there is evidence of a robbery in the store. Tommy Ziegler Sr. gave Eunice two $20 bills as she was leaving for the furniture store on the night she was killed. I'm not sure what the money was exactly for because that is a large amount of money to just be handing out. Today it would be about $213, but the money was missing from the crime scene and it was not on Eunice. Also, it makes me smile because Detective Fry, he did all this work trying to discredit Tommy and he found people that would say that Tommy was tight and like super tight with money. An example of this was Tommy didn't want Eunice to run the air conditioner, you know, that type of crap. And yet she has a father-in-law that just hands her about $200 and Tommy had just purchased her a new car. I mean, I just want to say like, I don't even care if Tommy is cheap and he is tight with money. He very well may be, but he did just buy his wife a new car and his dad just gave his wife 200 bucks just one night. Don't think Eunice was being financially constrained, but I do think Tommy would be the type of person that would tell you to turn the air conditioner off that the bill's getting too high. I agree, but that's just sometimes a part of being married to a person that really wants to run the show. Okay, but even more important than the two $20 bills, you know, to go show that a robbery card is the cocktail ring that was missing from Eunice's right hand. Where is Eunice's ring? Eunice had a family heirloom cocktail ring that she always wore and it was not on her body and it was not in her home. Who has that ring? The missing ring really points to killers that managed to flee the scene. If it was Tommy setting the scene to look like, like a robbery, then really I would have expected him to plant the ring on Charlie Mays because nothing could implicate Charlie as the killer more than a deceased woman's stolen ring in his pocket. But I think the robbers realized the value of that large cocktail ring because I mean honestly a lot of cocktail rings are costume jewelry but Eunice's cocktail ring was not. It was an incredibly large diamond ring and I think they took it with them when they fled because more than the thousand dollars missing, more than the two twenty dollar bills, more than the gold coins, I, that large diamond ring would be worth a lot of money and you could pop the stones out of that and just get rid of the stones and it would be, I mean I don't know, did anyone ever trace the pawn shops, the police investigators ever trace pawn shops to see if that ring ever turned up anywhere. I didn't hear anybody talking about that. It's not anything that I've read. It doesn't mean they didn't do it, but I think if they had, I think they would have mentioned it. Now, more evidence of a robbery is Perry Edwards Sr.'s wallet 
wallet was found empty in his car. Now keep in mind, Perry was a very, very wealthy man. A man that has over $3 million in real estate holdings. A man like that doesn't have a wallet without any cash in it in 1975. And his son noted that he didn't think his father used credit cards. Speaking of the Edwards car, I mean, that's where Perry's wallet was found. Just right outside the car was a pile of vomit. Someone had puked near the car. DNA, y'all. There is a picture of an officer scooping up of some of this vomit into an evidence bag, and this would be perfect for DNA testing. And I was just hoping that they didn't conveniently lose that vomit, you know, like they misplaced that second tooth. I asked uh, Lynn Marie Cardi if the vomit is still among the evidence that is going to be tested, and it is. And I am just so curious about that vomit because Felton Thomas told Lynn Marie Cardi that the white guy that he was introduced to as Ziegler's was spitting up at the furniture store. So if that is anyone other than Tommy's vomit, then it wasn't Tommy that Charlie Mays introduced to Felton Thomas. This white guy would be the mastermind behind the murders. Okay, sorry. Enough vomit chit chat. Back to my theory about the murders. Investigators state that there were no signs of robbery. Then what about the cash totaling totally $405 that was found in Charlie Mays' pocket? Perry Edwards' empty wallet. The $40 that Tommy's dad had given to Eunice was nowhere on her that night. Or the over $1,000 in cash that was missing from the store, along with a watch and gold coins. And then, of course, there was Eunice's missing family heirloom diamond cocktail ring. All of this is evidence of a robbery. Now, now that we can agree that there is, I would say, overwhelming evidence of a robbery, I want you to follow me a little bit further. Because while items were stolen from both the store and the victim's bodies, I don't think that the underlying motive for the crimes was robbery. I believe the crime that was originally intended to be committed that night was a hit on Tommy Ziegler. And I think that Charlie Mays was among the killers laying in wait for Edward Williams to deliver Tommy to his death. But before Tommy got there, Eunice and her parents arrived and they became unintended victims. The scene was set to make it look like a robbery to cover up the fact that it was a planned murder. It's just things went sideways and they had to kill more people than they originally intended. Now, I want to say I only went over William's money troubles because it goes to his motive that night. I'm not trying to say people that are down on their luck or people having employment problems kill people. I'm, I mean, that's just a ridiculous statement. But it's very interesting to me that Edward Williams and Tommy Ziegler had a long history together. They seemed like they had a friendship. The Ziegler family was a main source of income for Edward Williams. Why bite the hand that feeds you kind of thing? I mean, why would he have turned on Tommy, a man who had been so good to him for so many years? Why had Edward Williams delivered Tommy to the attackers? My answer is that Williams was desperate for money and that maybe he didn't fully realize what was going to happen inside that store. And that's why he was so panicked that night. I think the plan had been to kill Tommy that night, but maybe Williams just thought Tommy was going to be beaten up, you know, intimidated into not going after the loan sharks like Tommy had been. Williams might not have realized that Tommy was supposed to be murdered. Perhaps that's why Tommy's family was killed. It was supposed to be Tommy murdered that night to silence him and to stop Tommy from fighting against these loan sharks that preyed upon poor migrant workers. Tommy thought that maybe the corruption involved some local police as well. You know, like the police were paid to look the other way by the loan sharks. So it follows that if the loan sharks ordered Tommy's murder, but it ended up killing four other people as well as wounding Tommy, it's possible that the police would cover up for the loan sharks to hide the police's own involvement in the loan sharking business in general. It's important to remember that Eunice and her parents never planned to be in the store that night. They were supposed to stop in the store while the store was open earlier in the afternoon. But one of Eunice and Tommy's cats was sick. So the plans changed and Eunice took the cat to the vet that afternoon. And while Eunice and her parents were not supposed to be there that night, Tommy was. The idea that this was a setup to murder Tommy that went haywire when Eunice and her parents 
parents popped into the store makes complete sense to me. So if it's supposed to look like a robbery, why would the robbers leave money in Charlie's pocket? I think to solidify the robbery angle to make it look like a robbery where the killer is dead at the scene. So is, there's no need to further investigate if the robber is dead at the crime scene. Stop the investigation in its tracks. And I also think the scene is so confusing because it was heavily staged. Originally, it was staged to look like a robbery. It was, and it was a robbery. I mean, money was missing from the store. Perry Edwards' wallet was empty. Eunice's cocktail ring was missing. So that, why I say it was set up to look like a robbery, it also was a robbery. So that is a little bit misleading on my part. But my point is the real motivation for this crime, like I said earlier, is I think there's a strong possibility that it was actually a planned hit on Tommy, that the killer's plan to make look like a robbery gone wrong. But when Eunice and her parents are killed, the scene is a real mess. There are three bodies that weren't originally planned on, and Tommy laying on the ground, what they think, he's dying. And I don't know if it was always the plan for one of the killers to be murdered, or if the plan changed when the shit hit the fan when Eunice and her parents were murdered, but at some point, I think the killers decided to kill one of their accomplices, leaving someone to be found dead at the crime scene. They chose their co-conspirator, Charlie Mays. That way, the crime can be read one of two ways. The first is that Charlie was a robber, and he was interrupted while robbing the store, and he killed everybody. Or second, that Tommy had planned the murder of his family, perhaps even hired Charlie, and then killed him to eliminate him as a witness. If the police grab onto either of these theories, then no one is looking for a killer. He is either dead at the scene, that'd be Charlie Mays, or the injured or dead husband, Tommy. No one will be looking outside of these two people to find the killer. The real killers would never be pursued. Now, not all the robbers had to know this was going to end with murder. It's entirely possible that some of the robbers at the scene that night thought that they were for there for a robbery. For example, Charlie Mays. He may have thought he was just going there that evening and maybe meeting some other guys just to break into the store that night. In the back of my mind, I think the original plan that night, the plan of the killers, was to ambush Tommy when Edward Williams delivers him to the store. That's why Williams hangs back and pees by his truck instead of going directly into the store where there are bathrooms. Williams knew that Tommy was going to be attacked, but maybe he didn't realize that they were going to try to kill Tommy. It helps explain why Williams would have turned on a man who was a longtime friend. Then later, the crazy story that Williams tells about Tommy trying to lure him into the store and shoot him, it's just an attempt by Williams to cover up his own involvement with the crime. Now this raises the question, why would anyone put a hit out on Tommy? Well, Tommy was a do-gooder. But of course, that usually doesn't get you killed, right? But Tommy was super persistent, and he had brought down the Edgewater Hotel, which was a front for prostitution, gambling, and drug dealing. Tommy did this by first trying to enlist the help of the police chief, the fire chief, and even the head of code enforcement, but no one would help him close down this hotel. In fact, it was pretty clear that the hotel had police protection, because there was always an officer at the front desk. But Tommy was a man of business, and he knew how to get things done, and he contacted the Hotel and Restaurant Commission in the state capitol, and an inspector there closed down the hotel. Tommy got things done, and he cared about his little town and the little guy, but this could have created some serious enemies for Tommy. After his success in closing the hotel, Tommy turned to wiping out loan sharking. Now, Winter Garden was filled with migrant workers that worked the orchards. The workers would take out loans so they could buy groceries and meet the necessities of life, and they took these loans out daily. They wanted to be paid every day. They did not want to be paid weekly. But these loan sharks charged up to 500% interest. And Tommy was doing whatever he could to end this. But it was hard because it seemed like the loan sharks once again had some type of official protection, much like the hotel did. It was some of these loan sharks that had tried to use false allegations of drug dealing to get Andrew James' liquor license revoked. And Tommy had successfully helped him out. And then less than a year later, Tommy's wife would be dead. And Tommy was facing a trial for a quadruple murder? Could it be a coincidence? Sure. But it also could be 
connected. It is very likely that there was a criminal element in Winter Garden that wanted Tommy eliminated as a threat. Now, while modern theories about the murders look to Perry Edwards Jr. as the culprit or the mastermind behind the murders, I tend to lean towards the idea that a local Winter Garden criminal element carried out the murders with no intent to harm Tommy's family. But Eunice and her parents were killed when they happened on the killers laying in wait for Tommy to arrive. So now, after all these hours of talking about the murders and the trial, I want to now explain how I think things could have potentially unfolded that night. Eunice and her parents drive to the store in her parents' car. They leave Eunice and Tommy's home sometime after 7. Now, Eunice and her parents, they enter the store together by the front door with the keys that Tommy gave Eunice earlier that night. Now, Eunice left the keys in the front door, and it is with these keys that Tommy lets in Vicky and Thompson when they respond to Tommy's call for help. Okay, so now Eunice and her parents enter the store by the front door. I think they are pretty much immediately confronted with their killers, and that includes Charlie Mays. I think the killers arrive at the store sometime around 7.20, maybe a little bit earlier. First, they turn off the power from the main source outside at 7.24. That's when the electric clock stops. Maybe Felton Thomas pulls the lever on the power, but really, it could be anyone. I mean, I say Felton Thomas because he admits to being the person that cut the power later, but he just claims it was later in the night. I just think someone cut the power earlier at 7.24 when the clock stops. Now, like he said that he did later that night under orders from Tommy. Now, I don't buy the rip from the Agatha Christie novel theory that the time of death can be determined by a bullet that stopped a clock. The clock was electric. I think it stopped when the power was turned off. I think that turning the power off was one of the first thing the killers did at the furniture store before they gained entry to the store because I think the killers were worried that the store might have an alarm system that would be electrically wired. By cutting the electricity, they would be cutting off the power source for a potential security system. So in my opinion, the power was cut before the killers grabbed a piece of pipe and smashed a window to gain access to the store. While in the store, they plan to do a little light robbery while they wait for Tommy arrive to attack him. The shooting of the clock actually is something that I consider evidence that the scene was staged by someone with some real smarts. Perhaps even a law enforcement officer? Perhaps not. If that clock hadn't been shot, it would have been a dead giveaway that the power to the store was actually turned off much earlier than Felton Thomas claimed. I think that someone with a deeper understanding of crime scene investigation shot that clock to make it look like it was stopped by a bullet and not by a lack of electricity at 724. Now, the police have always operated under the belief that the clock stopped when it was struck by a bullet. The clock was near the ceiling at the top of the wall by the customer service counter. Really, who would be shooting that damn high near the ceiling? Either they were a terrible shot or the clock was shot on purpose. Fry theorized that the clock was shot and stopped when Virginia and Perry were shot, but it's nowhere near where their bodies are located. It's much closer to where Eunice's body is located. But like Eunice was killed in a different room. But it's also evidence that there's some level of a struggle that Perry Edwards had over near the customer service area as well. But it's really important to Fry. But recall that Fry has Eunice and her parents arriving at separate times because it's really important to Fry to have Eunice arrive there earlier and be shot earlier. Fry is sticking to a timeline that he can't deviate from because that might mean he was wrong. He can't have Eunice dying at 724 when the clock stops. So she has to already be dead before 724 for Fry's theory to hold up. So we have the killers arriving at the furniture store. First, they turn off the power. Then they bust out a window and enter the store. Remember, there is a broken window at the store. Now, Felton Thomas says that Tommy broke that window trying to gain entry to the store, but that doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense when we know Tommy clearly had access to keys to the store. And if he had wanted to break a window to make it look like robbers had gotten in through 
window, he didn't have to break that window in the presence of witnesses. He could have done that at any time when he was alone at the store. So, like I said, first the killers turn off the power, then they bust out a window and enter the store. They're waiting for Edward Williams to deliver Tommy to the store. While they wait on Tommy's arrival, the killers loot the place. And while this is going on, Eunice and her parents enter the furniture store through the front door and they are promptly attacked. Now, why didn't the robbers flee out the back of the store when Eunice and her parents arrived? If it really is just a robbery gone wrong. Well, maybe Eunice and her folks saw the robbers. The robbers may not have just been in the back of the store. If they are par Or if they are parked in the Ziggler's back parking lot, they would have to drive by the front of the store to leave and Eunice or her parents could have seen the vehicle leaving and connected it to the robbery once the robbery was uncovered. Or maybe, like I said before, it was a planned hit on Tommy. Remember, he had told people he would be in the store that night. His presence was expected. While Eunice and her parents, they were a surprise on the scene. The robbers, you know, slash killers, hear someone enter the store and go to make the kill, only to see that it's not Tommy. But it's too late. Eunice and her parents had seen the robbers, and now they have to be killed. Now, once Eunice and her parents are at the store, I think, logically, the killers first go after Perry Edwards. He is the only male victim at the, at the crime scene at this point, and it makes sense to me to take out the strongest target first. But Perry puts up one hell of a fight, and I can't tell exactly where Perry was first attacked because the blood hasn't been all DNA tested, but I think he's attacked near the customer service desk at some point because there is a pool of blood and shards of glass from Perry's broken glasses found on the floor in that area. As Perry fights, the struggle moves toward the back of the store where Perry is eventually, he will be found dead there. Now, while her father is being attacked, I think Eunice runs to the customer service counter, which she knows has the closest phone. She realizes that she isn't going to be able to get to that phone and she last minute runs to hide in the employee kitchen. The killers shoot her there in the employee kitchen. Eunice is shot in the back of her head, never seeing the face of her killer as she was shot. Now, initially, Virginia and Perry were both shot with the 38 RG revolvers that Frank Smith had purchased, but that gun didn't kill either of them. And ultimately, Virginia and Perry are killed with the same gun, the Securities Industries 38 that Tommy kept in his truck. Now, keep in mind that Edward Williams had access to Tommy's truck, and this is the gun that Edward Williams will later turn into police. While the bullet in Eunice's brain could not be positively matched to any gun, as the bullet was very heavily damaged, it did have rifling marks that were consistent with having been shot from either of the two cheap RG revolvers that William's friend had acquired. In my opinion, what I think happens is while one killer grapples with Perry, the other killer chased down Eunice and shot her in the back of the head. As she first, she tried to flee to get to the phone and then realizing that she wasn't going to be able to make it, she tried to hide. I don't believe the state's argument that Eunice was killed first. I feel like it's multiple killers attacking Eunice and her parents all at once because of the number of guns involved and the number of shots fired. And I think Eunice would have been able to make it to the phone or her mother would have been able to make it to the front door if there was only one killer on the scene. After Eunice is killed, someone stages her body by placing her hand in her pocket and laying her out straight on her back. Eunice is laying very unnaturally, as if she was shot and fell over backwards perfectly, not crumpled to the ground like most people or lying on their side. Also, Eunice was shot in the back of the head, and yet she fell backwards, laying on her back, which is not normal. A shot to the back of the head would traditionally lead to one falling forward. Now, inside Eunice's coat collar, there are droplets of blood that would not have dropped naturally from her gunshot wound. That means someone else is the source of these blood droplets. 
and the blood on Eunice's collar was likely transferred from her killer to her coat when her body was repositioned. It also implies that her coat, the collar, may have been open at some point, whereas when she is found, her coat is buttoned and completely closed. Now, another interesting fact is that under the lapel of Eunice's coat, there was evidence of blood transfer that appeared to come from someone's hands, like swipes. These aren't droplets. These are more like a smudge or a smear. It looks like someone had grabbed Eunice's lapel with bloody hands and stood over her body and dripped droplets of blood on the inside lining of her coat. Now, I would hazard a guess, completely a guess, that this blood very well could be Perry's blood because he had fought with his killers and I would, the way he was beaten, I would assume that whoever attacked Perry got blood on them. And that may be the person that rearranged Eunice's body. Now, it's important to know that Eunice's head wound was not the source of any of this blood that's on her coat. The blood dripped on the inside of the coat, shows that her coat was open at some point. The blood underneath her lapels showed that at some point, someone with bloody hands or something bloody was adjusting either her body or her coat. And this all just goes to show that Eunice was posed after her death. Her coat was buttoned and it was very likely her hand was placed into her pocket. This was probably done after her parents had also been killed. I mean, with all the victims subdued, the killers were free to loot the pockets of the victims, including, you know, taking the ring from Eunice's hand, taking money out of pockets, just, you know, just looting the, the place in general, including the victims. And I keep going back in my mind to that ring because the ring, I think, is probably the most valuable thing at that crime scene that's missing. And it's not like that $400 it's stuffed into Charlie May's pants pocket. This is missing from the scene, which means the killers, they did want to get away with some loot on this. And they did in the form of, you know, the cash, the other cash that's missing from the store. There's a gold watch and some gold coins and Eunice's ring. So there are things that they did get away with. So there is solid evidence that there is an underlying robbery in this case. And it goes to the point of if Tommy set this all up, where did he put those things? Because they've never been found anywhere. Now, from where Virginia was found, keep in mind, Perry's towards the further back of the store. Eunice is in the employee kitchenette. Virginia, she's closer to the front of the store. And it looks to me like she was running to the large front windows or the front door in an attempt to flee or try to alert people outside that help was needed. It looks to me like Virginia was running for help. To her path was towards the front of the store. Eunice also, I think, was running for help, but she had been going towards the phone. Now, Virginia was shot twice, and initially, Virginia was shot in the arm with the bullet passing through her arm and piercing her chest and tearing through her liver, lung, and stomach. Now, this first shot was from one of the 38 RG revolvers that Edward Williams acquired through Frank Smith. Now, I think this attack of the three victims was rapid and overlapped, but it's important to note that Eunice was killed almost instantly once she was run down. Perry and Virginia did not die as quickly. Perry was shot five times and beaten with finally two shots to the head. That's what finally killed him. And both Perry and Virginia, their lives were ended, both of them, with shots to the head from Tommy Securities Industries 38 that, like I said, Edward Williams had access to and Edward Williams would turn over to the police after the murders. 
The initial shots were from RG revolvers sourced through Edward Williams and Frank Smith. Eunice was killed with one of these guns. They are so cheap that one of them became so damaged the trigger was bent and it was inoperable. It's hard to determine for sure, but it looks like the killers, to me, I think it's a really good chance the killers were trying to exclusively use the two RG revolvers sourced from Frank Smith, as both Eunice and Virginia were initially shot with these guns. The shots to Perry's body were through and through, so the experts couldn't determine for sure which gun was used to initially shoot Perry. Now, seven shots were fired from the RGs. One gun was completely empty, and the damaged gun had been shot twice. And, like I said, Perry had been shot five times. Two of them will be with the securities industries, so he shot three times in his body, and Virginia was shot once. That puts four shots there from the, the RG revolvers, and then Eunice being shot once with an RG revolver. So that's five shots where people are actually shot. Five shots that, you know, made a connection with a victim. The other two shots, you know, the other two times the gun, the RG revolvers, it doesn't look like they made contact with anybody. Now, I just want to say, I don't think that this was ever meant to just be a robbery, at least not by the person, whoever it is, that's ultimately behind this crime. Now, why do I think this? Because any time after these initial killings, the killers could have fled the scene, but instead they wait for Williams to deliver Tommy to the store. So what I'm saying is, if Eunice and her family are innocent victims here, and they are, but I mean innocent victims that stumbled onto a robbery, once Eunice and her parents are killed, those robbers are gonna get the hell out of that scene. But they don't, they stay. With three dead bodies in that store, they stay. Why? Because their purpose hasn't been fulfilled. And their purpose is to get Tommy Ziegler. If it was truly an interrupted robbery, the killers wouldn't have stayed. I am thinking that Edward Williams' role was to get Tommy to come into that store so they could kill him that night. That this was a planned hit on Tommy. Eunice and her parents, the, their appearance at the store that night was a surprise. But Tommy had plans to be at the store that night. And he told several people that he would be at the store to pick up some deliveries. No outsiders knew that Eunice was going to be in that store. I think the robbery was incidental to the main crime the planned execution of Tommy Ziegler. The first killing started at 7.25, and at 8.30 is when Tommy arrives at the store and is attacked. That means that the killers waited in the store for over an hour after the first murders had taken place. They stayed there with three dead bodies for an hour. If this was a robbery gone wrong, they would have left the moment that they were able to but they didn't. They stayed. And that's why I think that this wasn't an interrupted robbery. It was a planned hit. And I think Edward Williams hangs back to piss in the parking lot while Tommy enters the store alone because Williams knows that something's coming. He might not know exactly what. Because Tommy is immediately attacked when he enters the store. And eventually, after he is beaten, he is shot and he loses consciousness. Finally, it's time for the killers to flee the scene. They have a problem. Edward Williams' truck won't start, and let me just tell you, it had never been part of the plan to leave one of the co-conspirators' vehicles in the parking lot of the crime scene. And this explains the dark car that Dr. Reeves, Tommy's neighbor, saw in Tommy's driveway twice that night. My theory, it's just a theory folks, I could be entirely wrong, but I think it's possible that the first time Dr. Reeves spots that dark car in Tommy's driveway at 805, that dark car 
is there dropping off one of the co-conspirators who then jimmies open the garage door from the top remember the defense team saw evidence that the garage door had been jimmied open so the garage door is opened and the conspirators they take curtis dunaway's car and drive it to the store to create the illusion that tommy drove to the store that night alone in the dunaway car and at this point i wanted to say what has dawned in my head i was debating before what was the purpose uh, why would tommy still be alive if it was a planned hit on tommy honest to gosh i really think they thought he was dead or dying i think they thought he was dead because if they're doing this back and forth with the vehicles then you can't have tommy alive to say that he went there with Edward Williams. So that's just an interesting point. That's what I'm saying. This case, the more you keep talking about it and thinking about it, the more that comes to your mind. So yeah, I'd have to say at this point, I think that the killer's thought Tommy was dying. So back at the crime scene, without Edward Williams' truck being able to start, the killers are in a real pickle. And Dunaway's car is there as well. So they have too many cars at the furniture store. So someone has to drive Dunaway's car back to Tommy's house and place it back in the garage and wipe it clean of prints. And this is what I think is the second sighting of the dark car in Tommy's driveway at 8.45. One of the co-conspirators drives Dunaway's car back to Tommy's house. And a dark car follows to give this person a ride away from Tommy's house. I would guess that one of these people involved in this transport here is Edward Williams because it would help explain his huge delay in arriving at the KFC. Recall that he doesn't get there until after Tommy regained consciousness and called for help. Williams had to help get the Dunaway car away from the crime scene. During one of those trips, one of the conspirators, they leave the 357 in the back seat of the Dunaway car, a gun that was normally kept in the store. Now when Williams finally gets to the KFC, he sees all the police over at the furniture store and he is outright panicking because he realizes that Tommy is alive and I just really don't think they expected that. I tend to think that Tommy had been left for dead and his survival surprised everybody. But to me, it does appear to be like Edward Williams' truck not starting. It's the second time that night the planned events go sideways. The first time is when Eunice and her parents walk into that store. The second time is when one of the conspirators' vehicle won't start. He can't flee the crime scene. Now, the idea that like Charlie Mays or somebody else went there and did this switcheroo, rigmarole the cars. And remember, keep in mind, this is all just to make it look like to get Edward Williams completely away from this whole crime. Like he had no, I don't think he had any plan initially to ever say he had driven Tommy there you know and he was he wouldn't have a gun to turn in it wouldn't be any of this crap but once his vehicle is stuck there and then also once Tommy survives he has to have a story and I just want to say that there is some evidence that someone was in Tommy's house that night after Tommy left with Edward Williams the kitchen light was on in Tommy's house when the police arrived but to me that just doesn't sound like Tommy I mean, they say he limited the use of the air conditioning in the Florida summers. So you really think this guy leaves lights on when he leaves the house? And besides, during his testimony at trial, Tommy actually said that as he waited for Edward Williams to show up at his house, he went around and turned off the lights in the house. Because Tommy, to me, he's a guy can't stop moving. He's got to keep going, going, going. So he's getting pissed that Edward Williams is late to meet him. So he's finding something to busy himself with. And that's turning off the lights but the kitchen lights is on when the police show up after the murders. So had someone been inside Tommy's house after Tommy left with Edward Williams and before the police arrived officially? You really can't tell, but Chief Thompson made sure that he was the first person on the scene to search Tommy's home after he returned from the hospital. And this guy is just everywhere that he shouldn't be. I can't keep going back to that. He's across the street at the KFC at the time that Tommy is being attacked. 
He's the first on the crime scene. He takes Tommy to the hospital. He's the first at Tommy's house to search it. He's the first to interview people from the Winter Garden in behind the crime scene. And every single one of these times, he is out of his jurisdiction. I can't keep, I, I can't, I can't let that go. And I'm not sure that Williams really wanted to contact the police when he went to the KFC. Once he shows up at the KFC and he sees the police are all out there, it's another oh shit moment for him. Oh shit, Eunice and her father is, and her mother is killed. Oh shit, his vehicle won't start at the crime scene. Oh shit, Tommy isn't dead. What do I do? And I don't know how quick Edward Williams is on his feet, but I don't think he wanted to even get through to the police, but I think he wanted to leave evidence that he had went there and tried to contact the police. I just think he was shocked as shit when he saw the police were already over at the furniture store when he got back from dropping off the Dunaway car at Tommy's house. His hand was forced, so he had to look like he was attempting to call the police, but I think he really just wanted to get as far away from there as he could and regroup. Think of a story, get fresh clothes, because that's what he does. Because we know William's landlady, and basically every single person that saw him at the KFC that night, described Williams as being in a brown-on-brown, shit-on-shit outfit that night. And we know that he changed before he went to the police. Because Williams handed over to the police a green pair of pants, a black cardigan, and a pair of brand-new, tag-steel-on-the-sole, 1970s high-heel dress boots. When I say high-heel, I mean high-heel. They look like Frankenstein boots. I wore them in the 90s. Like, this is something I, I'm not making fun of them like these are ugly boots. These are something I would have wore as a teenager, young 20-something lady in the 1990s. So he must have had a reason for not handing over the clothes he actually wore that night. And the best reason I can come up with is that there was either blood or gunshot residue on his clothes. And he makes a very weak attempt to contact the police. Tried calling at the KFC, but that didn't work out. What, did he try calling again? No. And he could have just walked across the street where the police were clearly visible outside the furniture store. Just walk across the street and talk to them. But he leaves and doesn't contact the police until hours and hours and hours later. Now for Felton Thomas, I honestly just don't know how he fits in. I think he might have been told that he was meeting Ziegler that night, but it wasn't Tommy. He may have been lied to. But in other ways, I really just don't understand the whole Orange Grove story. To me, Felton Thomas is a real wild card in the events that night. I mean, it, is it possible the police injected him into the story to cover the possible role that a convicted felon, Robert Foster, might have played in the events that night? Who the hell knows? This is the murkiest part of that night. Was Robert Foster involved? What did Felton Thomas know? Are the police trying to cover something? Or was it all just a mistake? It's very unclear. But overall, what I just talked about with how Eunice and her parents arrived and how they were killed and how Tommy arrives and how he's attacked and the transfer back and forth of the Dunaway car, that's basically my theory of the case based on the research done by Philip Finch, Lynn Marie Carty, and Lenora LaPeter Anthony's investigative work. I mean, they did all the research for us. And it's just piecing these items together. Now, I can't be sure what happened Christmas Eve 1975, but I will say one thing. I feel very confident that Tommy Ziegler is innocent. But one question always remains. If it was a planned hit on Tommy, then why leave him alive? And I'll tell you what, this is where my argument's probably at its weakest. Tommy did lose consciousness, so maybe they thought he was dead. 
or slowly dying. He was shot in the guts, you know? That does kill people. Or maybe, and I think this is far-fetched, they realized that Tommy would be accused of the crime. But I mean, that's one big leap because I am truly surprised that Tommy was accused, let alone convicted of the murders. And I don't think anyone could have seen that coming. So if it was a hit, why leave Tommy alive? Why change plans and not kill Tommy? Why frame Tommy instead of just killing him? If that's what happened, I tend to think they thought Tommy was right on the cusp of death. But why do this type of framing? And once they realize he's alive, I think that's when the framework probably really started happening. And that's the planting of the stories about Tommy being gay. But why try to frame Tommy, right? Well, it's to cast suspicion away from themselves. If the original plan had been enacted, Tommy would be murdered in a robbery stage. Maybe the killers always planned to kill one of their co-conspirators to make it look like Tommy managed to kill the robber, but also was fatally shot himself. And I really think that might be the case. That going into this, one of the conspirators was going to end up dead. And probably only one of the conspirators knew that. But once you have a robber dead at the scene, right there the investigation ends. No need to look for the robbers. You got the robber laying dead on the floor. But the shit hit the fan when Eunice and her parents entered the store and they had to be killed. You know, when they happened on the setup. And that's three people dead on the scene that can't be passed off as a simple robbery gone wrong anymore. The plan has to change and quickly. Tommy is still due to come to the store that night. So the frame up begins. Tommy could die that night or live. It doesn't matter anymore. It's more about casting suspicion away from the event as being a plan hit on Tommy or even a robbery and make sure the focus of guilt in the ensuing investigation is on Tommy and not the real killers. And to me, it's crazy that the really, the truly, the only thing that makes Tommy look guilty is that he survived. I think if he had died at the scene, then Williams and Thomas very likely could have been arrested for murder. The Mays family would not have sued the Zieglers. There wouldn't have been an insurance payout to the Mays family. Only by living did Tommy make himself a suspect. If Tommy had died, the scene was set to make it look like Mays was robbing the store. If Tommy lives, then he is the killer of everyone. It's a win-win for the murderers, because either way, no one is looking for them. And really, it's the injection of Don Fry into the murder investigation that really is, that's what caused Tommy's arrest and conviction. And I don't know how anyone could have foreseen that. But I do think it's possible that someone in law enforcement was involved in the murders and knew that if things started to fall apart, they could guide the investigation away from the truth and towards Tommy. Who this person is, I don't know. But there is evidence of corruption in this community, as evidenced by the Edgewater Hotel being closed down and police offering protection to the hotel. Idea that there's loan sharking going on and there may be police offering coverage to the loan sharks. Could it be that the framework wasn't even so much that the police were involved in the killings and that the police didn't want their involvement in other parts of corruption to come to light? Maybe. It's just hard to tell. But in all honesty, once Donald Fry is appointed to lead up the investigation, it's easy to point the direction of the investigation away from the truth and towards Tommy. The real killers, they just caught an amazing break when a self-important idiot was assigned as lead investigator. They wouldn't have to guide the investigation towards Tommy. I mean, Don Fry does that himself with just gentle nudging, it seems. Maybe the criminal cop plants the idea for the motive, you know, Tommy's alleged homosexuality. There is conflicting evidence about the origins of this rumor. In Fatal Flaw, Philip Finch writes at Don Fiddy's deposition, you know, he testified that Chief Thompson was the original source of the rumor. 
And maybe that's all they needed because Fry already thought it was Tommy and all you needed was a little gentle push. So I think I've made it pretty clear that I think Tommy Ziegler is innocent of the murder of his wife, his in-laws, and Charlie Mays, and that he's been sitting on death row for over 40 years in Florida for a crime that he didn't commit. Now, I outlined what I thought could have happened, but like I said, it's just a coulda. But what I do want to talk about is something that's more concrete, and that's the absolute absurdity of what the state's theory of the murders. Their theory is just bonkers, bonkers, bonkers. So just think about this. According to the state, think of all the people that Tommy is juggling and has waiting on him. He takes his wife to the furniture store where he murders her. Then he has arranged for his in-laws to show up at the store to be murdered. And this is all sometime around 725. Then Tommy has Charlie Mays meeting him at the store at 730. Now, actually, according to one witness, Charlie was to meet Tommy between 7 and 7.30 at the store. So one of the state's own witnesses is saying that Tommy had arranged for Charlie Mays to meet him at the time he is killing Eunice and her parents in the store. How would that have worked out if Charlie Mays had walked in while all this was going on? The, the amount of level of confusion. So Tommy's going to be there killing all these four people. Ah, oh, it's just insane. But anyway, then Tommy's got Edward Williams meeting him at his house at 7.30. He's killing his wife and his in-laws at 7.25. And has Charlie Mays supposed to be meeting him at the furniture store between 7 and 7.30. And he's got Edward Williams meeting him over at his house at 7.30. Why would he double book himself so much if he's... Yo, he's already... First off, he's booked killing people. Now he's booked with meeting Charlie Mays. And he's booked with meeting Edward Williams. It's too much. And also, I'm not done yet because he's also, during this time frame, he's supposed to be meeting the Fickies at his house so they can go together to the, the cocktail party sometime that night, which I think is maybe around eight. I mean, that's a lot going on on 35 to 40 minutes. A lot of driving back and forth, making yourself available to be seen by witnesses, abandoning three dead bodies in the store while he meets up with other people. Hell, the Fickies drove by the furniture store while they were out looking for Tommy and Eunice, and Rita noted Eunice's parents' car outside. What if they had stopped by the store to see if the parents knew where Tommy and Eunice were? They would have stumbled onto three murdered bodies when there was no one else in the store that Tommy could have pinned the murders on. Or the Fickies could have been there and spoke to Charlie Mays about waiting for the TV and substantiated his story. Why would Tommy risk this? Well, my answer is he didn't. The crime was what it looked like, a robbery turned murder, or perhaps it was a planned hit on Tommy with a frame up to make it look like a robbery. Mays was robbing the store, but not alone, when Eunice and her parents walked in, saw them, and they were murdered. Now, doesn't that just make a lot more sense than the convoluted, twisted setup that makes Tommy a murderer? Now, I want to talk about the missing evidence, because I think, now I want to talk about the missing evidence. Because I think if we had this evidence, we very well would probably know who the real killer is. There were two teeth at the crime scene, but only one tooth made its way to the sheriff's evidence lockers. There was a crime scene photograph that depicted a tooth on the sleeve of Charlie May's sweatshirt, and a second tooth was along the north wall of the showroom. Charlie Mays did lose a tooth that night, but no other victim, including Tommy, was recently missing a tooth. Someone left that store that night with a tooth missing. If we had that tooth today, we'd have the DNA of one of the killers. But of course, that tooth's gone. 
There is another piece of missing evidence that I think is very telling. Tommy thought that he had shot a 22 at his attackers, and a cartridge hull for a 22 was recovered from the rear of the store. Ballistics showed that Tommy's pistol had been fired. The FBI concluded that the 22 had been fired once before it jammed. So where is the slug? It was never found at the crime scene. A shell casing from Tommy's gun was found. It's in the proximate area where Tommy claimed that he tried to shoot and wrestled with his attackers. But it seems like that slug is unaccounted for. After the state was done with the crime scene, the defense studied the store for two weeks, and they found some evidence that the state had missed. But they never found that missing 22 slug. None of the victims had been shot by a 22, nor had Tommy. But somehow that slug left the store, perhaps inside one of the actual killers. You know, a guy that was also missing a tooth. Now, the investigators have always alleged that Eunice was killed first, and her parents arrived later and were murdered separately. They called Eunice's murder a surprise attack, where she was shot by somebody she knew and trusted. They base this on the fact that she looks peaceful, she has her hand in her pocket, that means that she knew her killer. But I'm not even sure how they come up with that claim, that it was a surprise attack by someone she felt safe with. I mean, the poor woman was shot in the back of the head. She wasn't even facing her killer. And there's no burn marks from the shot on the back of her head, meaning her killer was more than two feet away from her when she was shot. There is no evidence that shows that Eunice was shot by a loved one. I personally doubt very seriously that Eunice saw her killer's face. You know, immediately before she was shot, I'm sure she could have seen the killers as they were attacking her father and she was running through the store. But I mean, when she was shot, she was not facing her killer. But the idea that her body had been moved, well, that contradicts the state's theory of the murders. That Tommy drove Eunice to the store and killed her before her parents arrived. They have to make all these adjustments to make their story fit, but yet it never does. And to me, it's just so obvious her body was moved. I mean, you can find a crime scene picture of Eunice if you search online. Uh, she's laying perfectly straight. It's like she just fell directly backward. But she was shot in the back of the head. And under normal conditions, she would have fallen forward. I mean, this is basic stuff that the police should have realized in the 1970s. But they had their own theory. And they were just trying to fit the evidence to it. So the reason why she looks so peaceful is because she knew her killer. Not because she had been rearranged. Once the police became dedicated to the idea that Eunice was killed when no one else but the killer was in the store with her, it really became the foundation of the state's case. Now, investigators claim that Eunice's hand being in her pocket shows that she was surprised to be murdered as she was shot by someone she knew. But like I've said repeatedly, she was shot from behind. She had no idea she was being shot or who was shooting her right then. The emphasis that the state places on the position of Eunice's body is completely misguided in my opinion they're misreading the scene when she was shot i don't think she immediately landed like that someone altered her position and that left evidence of blood on the inside of her lapels of her jacket well, that's the underneath part of her lapels of her jacket and on the inside of the collar of her coat which shows that her coat was open at some point and some blood dripped onto her coat the state has no way to explain that instead they went for dramatic saying look how peaceful her body looks look at her face she was not in a state of shock or horror because she was killed by somebody she knew. But honestly, does that even make sense to you? Like, if I'm killed in my kitchen by my husband, I'm going to have a look of shock and surprise on me. The same look of surprise as if a stranger did it. Because I don't expect him to be doing that. You know what I mean? It's a little confusing here. I think the state's argument was just so dumbed down and so simple that a simple jury could understand it. Or at least they felt smart if they could understand it. Now, when you get down to the real evidence in this case, all the state really has against Tommy is the testimony of Edward Williams and Felton Thomas. And the fact that Tommy owned some of the guns 
the way of the crime scene, but that's his place of business. So I don't know if that's really evidence against him. To me, it's mainly Felton Thomas and Edward Williams' testimony. Now, Edward Williams was a man who helped purchase two of the murder weapons through a second party. He had left his broken down truck at the crime scene and he was in possession of the gun that killed Perry and Virginia Edwards after the murders. His story was unbelievable, yet the detectives immediately believed him and never once really pushed him or questioned his story. Was Detective Wright just jealous of Tommy, his success and connections, a life that Wright didn't have and maybe wanted? I mean, did this jealousy lead to a bias against Tommy? I'm not sure. But there's something where the focus was on Tommy when it was so clear that it should never have been there. Now, Tommy has always thought that a police officer was involved in the murders, and he even reported to his lawyers that before the trial that a Winter Garden police officer had threatened his life. And the Jellison phone call supports Tommy's theory. I mean, the Jellison family saw police arrive at what they estimated was 9 o'clock, but I feel it may have been a little earlier. There may be an issue with the time. But it's less about the time the Jellison family saw the police arrive. It's about the fact that they hear shots after this police officer arrives at the back of the store. And according to the Jellisons, other police cars arrive a while later, after this first police officer, and after they heard shots. Did a police officer arrive at the scene before Tommy called for help at 918? That's exactly what happened, according to the Jellisons. At this point, I want to return to Chief Thompson who the police officer that could be involved in these murders. It's hard to tell who that person is. First off, we don't know all the police officers in Winter Garden. So it could be somebody that's name is never even mentioned in the transcripts or the files or the record. But there is a name that keeps coming up, in my opinion, suspiciously. And it's Chief Robert Thompson. Because he's not a Winter Garden police officer. He's the police chief for another district, Oakland. And yet he seems to be in the center of this investigation. And you have to wonder, did he constantly inject himself into the investigation of the murders so he could direct it the way he wanted it to go? He was across the street at the KFC at the time that Tommy was being attacked. He was the officer that took Tommy to the hospital the first officer to enter the crime scene. He was among the first officers to search Tommy's house that night. His report referring to Tommy's wound as damp was hidden from the defense, and he was the first investigator to question the occupants of the Winter Garden Inn directly behind the furniture store. In all this time, he was out of his jurisdiction. His ass should have been in Oakland, and he didn't stay in the area very long after the murders because by the time the verdict was in on Tommy's case, he no longer was the chief of police of Oakland. He had moved on. So what had he moved on to next? Well, according to an article by Robert Schneider of the Associated Press, his daughter reports that Robert Thompson was running arms in Central America as a mercenary in the 1980s. While this woman, who clearly loves her father, doesn't want to implicate her father in the murders, she believes that Tommy Ziegler is innocent and she thinks that her father knew more than he ever let on in life. But he passed away in 1999 and there's so many questions left unanswered that she thinks that her dad might have the answers to in relation to the Ziegler murders. In Fiddle Flaw, it's noted that Robert Thompson was very overqualified for his job as chief of police. It just makes you wonder so much, was he brought in there by some type of criminal element 
to do something, who knows what. And when he was done, you know, he went off to running guns in Central America in the 1980s? Uh, I don't remember him in the Iran-Contra hearings, but then again, I was like seven, but. Okay, so to wind up, Tommy's life was changed forever, twice on Christmas Eve, 1975. First, when his family was murdered, and second, when an incompetent investigator was placed in charge of the case. Detective Fry's myopic focus on Tommy completely derailed the investigation. When Fry tried to get everyone's stories and times in line, he noted that Edward Williams' times did not fit into his official timeline that Fry had created, so Fry just adjusted Williams' times accordingly. Fry felt that Williams' times were 15 to 10 to 15 minutes too early. And when the times didn't match up to the known evidence in the timeline of other witnesses, Fry never once considered that perhaps there was a discrepancy between Williams' times and those of other witnesses because Williams was actually lying. Instead, it's all an innocent mistake. An innocent mistake by the person in possession of the murder weapon with his vehicle at the crime scene. It seems a great leap to think his mistakes would be innocent. Now, Don Fry, he just sums it up all when he once said, there is not one shred, not a shred in my brain of doubt about Tommy's guilt. And therein lies my problem with the police. This man is so taken with his own skills of deduction that he can't even entertain the possibility that he is wrong and that Tommy is innocent. I find it appalling that Donald Fry doesn't leave any room for doubt about Tommy's guilt. And it's thinking like this that leads to police planting evidence, which I think might have been done here with the paper bag that contained the gun boxes, cartridges, and blue towel from Curtis Dunaway's car that was found in the storeroom cabinet days after they were already searched. When a police officer becomes completely convinced of a defendant's guilt, the police officer actually begins to think that he's doing the right thing when he plants evidence or pressures someone to lie under oath because they will do anything to get this guy that they know is guilty. But really, one should look at it this way. If the defendant is so clearly guilty, why would you ever need to plant evidence? The evidence of guilt should be there on its own. And if it isn't, that means there is at least a chance that this person is innocent. Once a police officer begins to entertain the idea of tampering with evidence, he should instead entertain the idea that perhaps they have the wrong guy. Now, Tommy will not give up, and I love that about him. I mean, he can be caged, but you can't take away his hope. He can't be defeated. No matter how many times Tommy gets kicked in the teeth, no matter how long he has fought without a win, Tommy does not turn away. He, he endures. He might get down, but he is never out. And while the state just hopes he dies... And then they won't have to respond to what they have done to this man. Tommy himself keeps himself fit. 45 years on death row and this guy is outliving everyone. Why? Because he wants to live to see the truth come out. And that's his greatest fear. I read a recent interview with him where he said, because he finally has granted, been granted the DNA testing that he's fought for for decades at his own expense. He's going to be able to do extensive DNA testing. And his only concern is that he won't live to see the results of the testing. Isn't that sad? Because the state of Florida never executed Tommy, but they took away 45 years of his life. Tommy can never get that back. It's gone. The man's life is gone. And before December 24th, 1975, everyone knew that Tommy was always a man of his word, an honest and good man. All I can say is, Florida, do the right thing. Once the DNA results come back, and if they show that the murders did not unfold the way the state has argued for 
decades and instead supports Tommy's defense, release Tommy Ziegler from jail. Give him a new trial because you got the wrong man. And I think it's time you admit it and you restore Tommy Ziegler's good name because it's just about the only thing he can get back at this point.